Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to talk, as we have been doing a lot lately, about a country that I believe we also love, I certainly do, and I think most Americans do as well, and that would be the state of Israel. It is under siege at the moment, even as it wages war in Gaza against the people who brought it the horrific uh, October 7th attack, but under siege from other quarters, uh, notably Iran, but also its proxies in Lebanon and in Yemen and assorted others as well. Uh, we're going to be talking with Alex Tremen, the editor-in-chief of uh, JNS.org, uh, uh, the Jewish News Syndicate. He's also its Jerusalem bureau chief. But before he did, I want to just get off my chest a little bit about a very positive development uh, that took place this weekend, namely the liberation by Israeli defense forces of two of the hundred or so hostages that we believe remain alive and in the, uh, well, possession, I guess you could say, of the people who took them from their homes and uh, duty stations, uh, Hamas. Um, this gives lie to the idea that the only way to get these people out is by ending military operations. Uh, I think, in fact, to the contrary, the only way to really assure that you will get them out is through the decisive defeat of Hamas. And by the way, more importantly, to prevent Israelis all over that country, uh, whether it's in Israel proper or uh, the so-called occupied territories, I call them the disputed territories of Judea and Samaria, who are at risk every single day of being taken hostage for ransom at best and at worst being tortured uh, raped or murdered, as were so many Israelis on the 7th of October. Decisive victory is the only outcome that can be accepted here, and efforts by the Biden administration, which we'll be talking about with Alex, to prevent that are to be abhorred and, I hope, repudiated by not just the American people, but by the Congress of the United States as well. Alex Trayman, welcome back. Thank you for taking that aboard. It's good to have you with us, and thank you for the great work you all do. I had the chance last week to visit personally and uh, on air with uh, our mutual friend and your columnist, Carolyn Glick, and um, it just reminded me of just how important uh, the JNS.org service is. So thank you for doing it and for joining us from time to time as well. Thanks for having me, Frank. I wanted to start by asking you about, um, uh, well, your thoughts on what I just said, I guess, for starters, uh, the hostages release in this case through force of arms and the pressure that uh, Bibi Netanyahu is under from some in Israel, yes, uh, including hostage families, I guess, but also uh, others, including the government of the United States, to enter into a protracted ceasefire. Uh, that would uh, result in the dribbling out of these hostages, we're told, by Hamas. Well, the whole reason why Hamas took hostages at the very outset of this conflict was in order to be able to uh, target the heartstrings of the, of the Israelis and to get them to stop fighting. That's the purpose of taking the hostages. So obviously what you have to do is make sure that an October 7th can never happen again, meaning that Hamas can never take hostages ever again. And if they get what they want by taking hostages, if they get the prisoners that they want released, released, if they get a cease in the in the hostilities because of a hostage release, what you're basically doing is telling them to take more hostages because that's how you get exactly what you want. Um, right. And there's and, a how, and how serious is the problem beyond Gaza of, as I say, uh, in the so-called West Bank or even Israel proper of this kind of tactic being applied again? Well, you have Hamas in Judea and Samaria. You have Hamas in Jerusalem, for that matter. You have Hezbollah to Israel's north, and they also have the significant tunnel network that's being uh, being learned more and more about, uh, and the threat of the border being stormed over there. So this is a 
not a new tactic that Hamas has used. They've used it before. Remember, they kidnapped a Israeli soldier after a ceasefire in 2006, Gilad Shalit, and in 2011, uh, Israel, and in fact, uh, Netanyahu probably made one of his worst mistakes as prime minister, and he traded 1,000 uh, prisoners in exchange for one soldier, Gilad Shalit. And in those 1,000 prisoners was Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of the military operation in, in the Gaza Strip today, uh, and many others. So, you know, you have to change that paradigm, and what that means is you can't give in. The reason... The reason why the first uh, the first ceasefire worked, the the temporary pause in the fighting for and Israel recovered 110 hostages was because it was a less than two week ceasefire. And uh, Israel understood that it could withstand the two week pause in the fighting, even if there would mean a greater risk uh, to soldiers when they would restart. They still understood that they could withstand that pause and continue going. But what Hamas wants now is an extended ceasefire. They want six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it might be. The whole point of that ceasefire would be that it would make it difficult for Israel to restart fighting, especially now as uh, international support you know, for Israel's continued operation is waning and the international community wants to see a permanent ceasefire. So you can't go for a six-week ceasefire when the whole international community is not going to agree to allow you to restart the fighting. Now, where the IDF has proceeded so far, you know, from the north of Gaza down through central Gaza into southern Gaza in through Khan Yunus, and, and now everybody understands that Rafa is the last stand. It's the Alamo of, of Hamas. Uh, and that throughout this entire period, as the IDF gave passage for civilians to move south, that hostages were smuggled along with the civilians. We have reports from hostages saying that they were dressed up as Muslim women in full hijab and niqab, you know, taken along humanitarian corridors into the south. Israel has, as it's marched, it has picked up significant intelligence. The reason why they're able to find these hostages is because now they're starting to know where the hostages are. You know, they've gone through so much of the tunnel network and, and the last remaining places are, are now within grasp. And so this, this uh, rescue of these two hostages, I think, was a, a vindication of Israel's continued efforts. And, and God willing, yeah. we'll see the, the recovery of more hostages. This is a subject which will return. But let me just ask you about one other piece of this. Um, Carolyn Glick, as I mentioned, uh, writes a brilliant column for you each week. And uh, I believe it was last week's was uh, a kind of 11 point indictment of what the Biden administration is doing to subvert Israel at this critical moment. Uh, and one element of it, which uh, I know you've been seized with as well, is the executive order that was issued by Joe Biden against four settlers in uh, the West Bank is Judea and Samaria uh, that are, are accused by the administration of having engaged in extremist violence. Um, what do we know about these folks? Uh, how have they been uh, well handled by Israel's own, you know, uh, law enforcement mechanisms? And what do you make of this development and what do you think it portends for the future? I think it's an extraordinarily dangerous development. Um, you have four individuals who have never been convicted of a crime in Israel. OK, uh, you know, they've been accused of being engaged in violence against the Palestinians. Uh, one of them was supposedly had participated or allegedly had participated in a riot in the, the town of Huwara, which is a town where Palestinians had repeatedly opened fire and killed and, and in, se severely injured uh, Israelis that travel through a, a shared road that goes through this Palestinian village, uh, where the village is basically on both sides of the, the main thoroughfare that both Israelis and Palestinians used to go north-south. Um, and it had turned into into a haven for terror. And after the IDF really failed to secure that road, uh, you know, citizens, uh, you know, took matters into their own hands. Now, you have thousands and thousands of over the years of, of terror. Incidents. I have to ask you to hold the thought, Alex. We have to take a very short break. We'll be right back. I want to pick up right where you're leaving off. Alex Trayman, the president, CEO of the uh, Editor-in-Chief of great organization, Jewish News Syndicate, is with us. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Avenue with the Secure Freedom Minute. The Israeli military's liberation of two hostages seized by Hamas jihadists on October 7th is, of course, good news. It may also be a tipping point in the war for Western civilization that Israel is waging. Clearly, the argument that the only way to release such hostages is by ending military operations has been refuted. Not only can they conduce to such rescues, this weekend's success reinforces the contention that only by decisively defeating Hamas will the prospects improve for freeing the rest of them. And even more important, such a defeat is required to minimize the chances that other Israelis are seized by Palestinians in the future, perhaps on the West Bank, or even in Israel itself. At best, to be held for ransom, and at worst, tortured, raped, and murdered, like so many during Hamas's infamous one-day Holocaust last October. This is Frank Afney. Welcome back. We're visiting with Alex Treyman. I misspoke. Uh, Jonathan Tobin is the president and CEO of JNS.org. Alex is its editor-in-chief and Jerusalem bureau chief. We're delighted to have you with us, uh, Alex. And you were in the middle of talking about how uh, settlers have had to take into their own hands their self-defense in parts of uh, Judea and Samaria. Um, You mentioned that uh, these four have not been uh, convicted of anything? Have they been charged with violence by the judicial authorities? In, one, one was in, in administrative detention for for an extended period, but released without being uh, charged. Uh, you know, others are just alleged, maybe had been arrested, but then released. Uh, so you, now you have a situation in which uh, a network of uh, NGOs, many of them funded by the New Israel Fund in Israel, uh, many of them receiving funding from the the George Soros Extended Network. Uh, are basically preparing lists of, you know, so-called settler violent activists and giving them to the United States. These are individuals who have never been convicted of a crime in Israel. And now by executive order, the president of the United States is saying that they want these individuals sanctioned. And it's not that they're- And is imposing sanctions himself on them. Correct. And it's not just that they're imposing sanctions saying, look, these four can't travel to the United States or can't do banking in the United States. What happens is because we have an international banking system that the this sanctions regime is forcing Israeli banks to sanction these individuals. So they have frozen the bank accounts in Israel of these individuals. So now you have individuals in Israel that have never been convicted of a crime where the United States by executive orders says that their bank accounts in Israel need to be closed. And there's a very, very slippery slope because it also doesn't define, it doesn't define clearly what are the parameters, uh, you know, for such sanctions. So basically uh, on a looser level, if anybody shows support for anything that goes against what the United States thinks its policies are at that given time, which could be, you know, just supporting Jewish life in Judea and Samaria, Area, the the Biden administration could could essentially close their bank accounts in Israel. Yeah, and and this is really important to understand because the the left wing groups Soros obviously, but the New Jerusalem, uh, New New Israel, New, New Israel Fund, excuse me, uh, are are very much opposed to the whole idea of settlers uh, in uh, in Judea and Samaria, and uh, so is the Biden administration. So was the Obama administration before it. So you're absolutely right. This is not just a slippery slope. This is a shoot that I think they're only too happy to slide down. And how can um, these Israelis fight against that? Yeah, well, that's another question. And I, again, I, I think it's evidence of the growing rift between Israel and uh, the U.S. government. I don't think between the American people and Israel, but uh, under the Biden administration, like, again, I call it Obama-Biden 3.0, uh, its two predecessors, uh, this administration is really deeply hostile to Israel. Um, Let me ask you about um, one aspect of uh, the previous uh, Biden administration's uh, campaign against Israel. It uh, engineered, I would say, snookered Israel into accepting a memorandum of understanding um, with some uh, funding uh, attached to it and the promise of uh, uh, access to American defense uh, manufacturers to help 
uh, enable Israel's uh, Iron Dome and other capabilities. But the kicker was, Alex, as I understand it, uh, that the MOU essentially meant that before it was over, Israel was to rely upon the United States more or less exclusively for this kind of material support. Hence, the kind of leverage that the Biden administration now has on the government of Israel and cutting back on that aid is uh, is pressure aimed at trying to cut Israel back on its military operations. Have I got that basically right? And uh, how concerning is that from the Israeli perspective at this point? Well, this was a, a 10-year, $38 billion MOU that was signed between Israel and the United States. It was actually uh, signed uh, by by Prime Minister Netanyahu, and it was negotiated with Ron Dermer. Uh, and of course, uh, you know Israel does rely heavily on uh, the aid, and the, and they felt at the time that this kind of actually uh, anchors the U.S. the strength of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, but there are a few kickers there, as you mentioned. Uh, first of all, is that uh, is that one hundred percent of the funds that Israel receives from the United States must be spent back in the United States. And that is why you become reliant on American uh, parts, because you have to spend the money there. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, the United States gets a veto over other defense deals that Israel wants to sign. So basically, they're not allowed to cut deals with other countries unless the United States signs off on that. Uh, so it, it's highly problematic also that it doesn't, uh, it, it basically forbids Israel from lobbying the Congress for additional funding. Um, so there, there's a lot of components of this deal, which are, which are really negative. And, and it's one of the, the major misconceptions uh, of many that have been, uh, that have come out after October 7th, which is you don't want to be relying on a singular country, a third party for, for all of your military might. In fact, I had thought that that had been Israel's, you know, fixed position um, from its founding, basically. And uh, I, I understand it has always had help um, from outside, but uh, to put itself in this kind of position is, is uh, well, dangerous, to say the least. Uh, which brings me to a final point with you, Alex. Uh, one of the other aspects that Carolyn has identified, and I know you're very aware of, is uh, the apparent determination despite these decisions that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has made in the past, um, that he must go that he is singularly responsible for opposition in Israel to a Palestinian state, for example, or to a ceasefire and the like. Um, this would, again, seem to breach the most fundamental principles of uh, an alliance relationship that our government is trying to topple yours. Um, what's going on with that? And uh, where do you think it will lead? Yeah, amazing that the United States is not trying to topple the regime in Iran or, you know, any of these uh, any of these dictatorial leadership's uh, you know, dict dictatorships all enemies the world. I would call them. Right. Yeah. But here here in in Israel you have a, a democratically elected elected leader of an ally, uh, but what they're doing is not new. I mean, Bill Clinton is openly acknowledged and and Netanyahu writes about it in his book that Clinton actively tried to get Netanyahu replaced in the late 90s and succeeded actually to, to get a Barack in place. Uh, Obama, you know, put State Department funds into an organization called V15 to, to try to replace Netanyahu in 2015. So this is this is classic. It's not nothing new. But um, but is let me just ask if it is something new, because as I recall, I mean, these governments, yes, were hostile to Bibi. And I think there's no doubt that uh, uh, Clinton sent his strategist uh, and, and, you know, political team in to try to help defeat Bibi. And similarly, I think Obama correct. did as well. It's that's bad enough. That's interfering with the democratic process uh, of a friendly nation. But to to actually try to remove from power a man elected by the democratic process yeah, he, seems to be a little bit different and and very troubling indeed. Yeah, there's repeated reports. Uh, Joe Biden just the, the as I'm looking right now said to call Prime Minister an a hole. You know, the, the other day a report that that Biden called him a bad effing guy. There's a Hillary Clinton said directly that uh, that Netanyahu is not trustworthy and he needs to go. Now, why do they say that he needs to go? Uh, because they want the outcome of October 7th to be the creation of a Palestinian state. Now, 
Israel in the 90s entered into an ill-fated process called the Oslo Accords, which was based on a simple formula. It was called land for peace. And, and people in Israel doubted very much that the Palestinians could ever deliver peace in exchange for, for whatever land Israel had to offer. Now, Palestinians and Hamas commit the worst massacre in the history of the modern state. And the United States says that uh, the natural outcome of this is that the Palestinians must finally get their state, which was this is exactly the fear that Israelis had to begin with the whole time. So they were lying when they said land for peace. They never meant it. What they meant was give half your country to the Palestinians and whatever happens after that, you have to deal with it. And, and now that's what they want to enforce. Uh, but I will tell you that it's not Netanyahu that doesn't want a Palestinian state. There's not one Israeli from right to left in this country right now that thinks that a Palestinian state should be the result of October 7th. From your lips to God's ears, I hope that's so. And I hope that that will be the outcome here. No Palestinian state is a threat to you and to us. Thank you, Alex Trayman. God bless your work at JNS.org. I know you'll keep it up. Come back to us soon. We'll be Thanks, right back with more right after this. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. back and i'm pleased always to be able to say we're joined by bill walton the host of the bill walton show a man who knows his way around wall street from his time among other things as uh, president ceo of allied capital he knows his way around washington as well from his time as the president of the council for national policy he knows his way around finance most especially and we always look forward to the chance to visit with him about all of that bill welcome back good to have you with us sir frank great to be here I want to thank you for, among other things, uh, the excellent work you do at the Bill Walton Show. I want to also say that um, one of the topics that I know you have been focused on there and elsewhere is what's happening with respect to American investments in China, and specifically the venture capital firms that continue to plow money into the place. This was the subject of a report that was just issued by the select committee of the House of Representatives on the Chinese Communist Party and our competition with it. Um, what did you make of the report, Bill? And where do you think we stand in the wake of um, the kind of meltdown of the stock exchange of China and uh, a lot of mischief going on there? Well, Mike Gallagher heads this committee, produced a report you know, that was good as far as it goes. It touched on about five the activities of five nominally U.S.-based venture capital firms. However, all, almost all of those firms have offices in Beijing or other parts of China. and Including China, Sequoia, China, which is including uh, Sequoia, particularly China, problematic. Is headed yeah. by Neil Shin. We, you know, we've talked about that. And and you remember, Frank, uh, this is all this is there's a bit of revisionist history going on here because the U.S. government was encouraged these venture capital firms to invest in China for about a 15-year period. And only in the last three to four to five years, maybe not even that, have we woke, awakened to the, to the real threats that that poses. And so a lot of them... When you Some of us more awake than others, Bill, let us be clear. I'm not so sure well, the Biden Frank, administration just... is that awake <laughs> or woke, shall we say. Well, Frank, this, this preceded Biden. 
This, this went all the way back to uh, Bush and Obama and the entire uh, neocon world where we were all going to invest in, in China and turn them into a liberal democracy and live happily ever after. Well, that didn't happen. Anyway, a lot of these firms, they, he identified about $3 billion of investments in strategic industries like artificial intelligence, um, advanced semiconductors, and a lot of things that go into the Chinese military, which, as you point out, uh, they intend to kill us with. And it's, uh, it's, it's incredib incredibly problematic. But, you know, having spent uh, almost four decades in private equity, Wall Street, and venture capital, I have to say a lot of these firms were caught... Uh, and they're now caught in a vice because they've got these operations there. They have these investments. And at one point, they were socially approved by the U.S. government. Now they're persona non grata. My guess is that these venture capital firms are going to end up writing those investments down to zero at some point. Because what's happening here, Frank, is that they didn't get a lot of information. The committee didn't because these firms are terrified to talk to U.S. investigators. And why are they afraid? Because the Chinese Communist Party is locking up people who cooperate. And there have been dozens of people who are in these firms, one of whom showed up one day in the office and next day they found out was in, was in prison. And so there, there's real concern about that. And, and, you, and the other thing is that, you know, while we were encouraging people to invest, firms to invest in China, the U.S. Treasury Department's been totally asleep at the switch. I mean, they have a group called CFIUS, which is monitoring investments here in the United States by actors like China, but they've done nothing, nothing to monitor U.S. investments in China. And therefore, you know, Gallagher's uh, committee, and there's some, some of it, but my guess is $3 billion is is the tip of a oh, yeah. three or $400 billion Minimal. iceberg. Yeah. And, Bill, uh, let me just ask you on that point. If you say that these firms are going to write this investment in China off, um, what does that mean for the people whose money they're playing with? Bye-bye. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, Frank, if you're, if you're an investor, you know, if you're a sophisticated institutional investor investing in Chinese venture capital firms or businesses that firms that do business in China, you've got to recognize the country risk. And it didn't seem to exist five five, six, seven years ago. Now it's, uh, now it's uh, shining with neon bright lights. Don't invest. We've talked about this before. Uh, now most, most sophisticated investors are calling China uninvestable because, uninvestable because of the, uh, the way the PRC or the Chinese Communist Party is treating them. The, the other thing to keep in mind that, that's really, it, it's related. The Chinese, Party's mind, Chinese Communist Party's mindset the Chinese, copy, uh, Chinese stock market and in Hong Kong and Shanghai has been collapsing. It, it may be down, last estimate, 40, 50 percent just in the last six to seven months. And had you invested in, uh, and we'll get you a PDF for this, had you, had you invested in the Hong Kong stock market um, in 1997, if you put your money in, fast forward to today, your total return for this time has been 5 percent. That's not 5% annually. That's completely complete return over time. While at the same time, investments in the investments in the other exchanges, the U.S. most notably, have gone up five or six times. So it's been a catastrophe for investors to be in China. It's also dangerous. And, and, and yet these companies have been pouring money. And it's not just the venture capital firms that uh, are the subject of this re recent report. It's also BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and so on. And Bill, I, I guess the thing that is so stunning about this is uh, we've been warning about this for several years now, our Committee on the Present Danger China in particular. But if all of this is really going to be written off or, or simply lost because if the Chinese go to war with us, God knows that's bye-bye. That, no. But that doesn't mean the venture capital tech, it doesn't mean the information and the expertise and the technology is going to be written off. No, the Chinese will control that. So essentially, you've just lost your economic interest in your investment, but that doesn't mean it's still not going to be useful to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, our job here is to kind of look ahead. I view Gallagher's committee as looking backward. And to look ahead... Uh, I mentioned the Chinese stock market. Well, it's been collapsing. You know what the party has done? They fired the head of its securities uh, regulator and the, the new head of it. As though it's his fault that this thing has collapsed? 
well, that's the way they see it. Then the new regulator promptly did, let me write that, let me make sure I've got this right. He promptly came in and uh, first thing Mr. Wu did as head of Chinese securities was to punish technology companies and about 100 securities professionals with heavy fines and administrative punishment. So somehow these companies whose shares are fallen are now being held responsible by the party. That has an incredibly chilling effect, obviously, if you're gonna be in, in that world. The other thing, Frank, is that the, this has been, this bears on our talk about uh, how volatile China is likely to become. In the United States, European markets, about only about 20% of the shares are held by uh, individual investors. In China, it's about 95%, and that's 200 million people in China who own shares in this collapse in the market. Then the party's reaction is, you know, fire the people in charge. They also have another interesting take on this. They've now got, have an edict now that you're only allowed to buy securities. You're not allowed to sell securities. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little unclear how that works. I'm trying to figure this out. Oh, you can buy it, but yeah, finding but a not, seller that nobody's gonna nobody's going to sell is going to be tough. So Bill, this, you you and, you alluded to the st instability, and I I just want to say we did a wonderful webinar of our committee on the present danger of China last Friday. Yeah, I watched one it. Of it was the, terrific, right? One of the takeaways from it was clearly that you know uh, all of this instability is almost certainly creating a further impetus for Xi Jinping to do what totalitarians usually do when they get in this kind of crack, and that is to lash out. And that means quite possibly lashing out here because Xi has put into place a lot of means for doing just that. And one of the takeaways for me in particular, Bill, I guess was this is a moment where we need to be moving on offense against the Chinese Communist Party, not just simply sitting here waiting for the worst to happen. And I think what you've just described is further evidence of the opportunity to reach over its head to the people of China who have, in addition to this disaster, financial disaster, enormous numbers of reasons for being furious with this party, among other things, what was done to them under COVID and then just mass murder as well uh, in the course of the history of this party. So I guess the question to you is, Bill, um, how important is it for us to be working with what uh, our friend Steve Bannon calls the La Bajing in China against our mutual enemy, the Chinese Communist Party? Well, it's essential if we had people in positions of power in the defense establishment or the State Department who had the wit to see what the opportunity was. The 200 million investors, Frank, are angry. They've, they've lost almost their entire savings, and it's hard to see how, how it comes back, particularly when they've got a market that is effectively shut down. Uh, we, we need to but, but Bill, that's on top of uh, all the people who've lost money in real estate, too. And you've, you've said that's where most of this money has been saved over the years. Well, that's it? true. We did have about 50, 60 percent of their investments in real estate, which has also collapsed, a bigger collapse, perhaps, than even the stock market. Um, and so the if not now, when, to, I guess, is the question. The only place that they're left to invest are, are banks or right. institutions controlled by the party. Um, yeah. There's this is right, and that and that's for, not looking so bright either, given bank failures and runs well, on the, the banks. banks are, the banks have a lot of exposure to real estate uh, and the other place. So, uh, yeah. So, why do you do it? I mean, the 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 individual investors now, as I understand it, are taking the chat boards in India. You know, the the blackout information in India in China is almost complete, and so there's there's really no way to get to these people. We need some digital version of. Uh, what we did back in the Cold War of uh, radio-free Europe. At a minimum. Uh, at a minimum. But again, Bill, we have Frank, to leave it at that. We We're out of time. I have to let you go, my friend. You know the vicissitudes of the solution. time clock. We'll have to wait for next time. We will come back to you for the solution next time. God bless you, Bill Walton. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next okay. time. Stay tuned for more right after this.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The Israeli military's liberation of two hostages seized by Hamas jihadists on October 7th is, of course, good news. It may also be a tipping point in the war for Western civilization that Israel is waging. Clearly, the argument that the only way to release such hostages is by ending military operations has been refuted. Not only can they conduce to such rescues, this weekend's success reinforces the contention that only by decisively defeating Hamas will the prospects improve for freeing the rest of them. And even more important, such a defeat is required to minimize the chances that other Israelis are seized by Palestinians in the future, perhaps on the West Bank, or even in Israel itself. At best, to be held for ransom, and at worst, tortured, raped, and murdered, like so many during Hamas's infamous one-day holocaust last October. This is Frank Afney. Welcome back. A special welcome to Scott Powell. Dr. Powell is a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute, the author most recently of Rediscovering America, in which he explores America's history through its national holidays. It's a tremendous book. He's also the author of Covert Cadre, a book that he wrote back in, I believe, 1988, and that uh, is an extraordinarily important sort of short course on the nature of communism and the extent to which it operates sort of covertly, as they say, uh, inside our wire, inside the United States. Um, we wanted to catch up with him to talk about a piece that he recently wrote at American Thinker about uh, cultural Marxism and how it is operating inside our country. And uh, to do that, I'm pleased to say Welcome back, Scott Powell. It's great to have you Thank with you, us Frank. once again, sir. Always good to be with you. You know, um, you, uh, you've you been a serious student of these matters for a long time, and I thought that your sort of crystallizing of four main lines of attack that the communists use to take down uh, nations like ours uh, was extraordinarily helpful. And it, and it starts with attacking our history. And you've recently been involved in a prime example of that, uh, going after a, a very important monument in Arlington National Cemetery. But set the stage a little bit for us, Scott, on, uh, on the communist revolution inside America at the moment. Well, that was one of the things that, that really uh, troubled me during the COVID um, period, uh, 2020, after the George Floyd death, was the not just the destruction of cities across America, but the targeting of monuments and, and memorials of our history. And, you know, there were the, the easy target was, of course, Columbus, who, you know, who opened up the new world to colonization. That's that's the Marxist Leninist, uh, you know, analysis. But um, it was very clear they wanted to go after them all. I mean, then it was the Confederate uh, uh, monuments and generals. <clears throat> Because that's an e it was an easy target, and remember that. So they go after our history. They want to destroy the connection of people to their heritage. Whatever society the communists are trying to take over, that's one of the key things that they do. Sometimes it it, it doesn't it isn't the leading thing, but it 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 is part of the communist revolution, and oftentimes it follows. Once they take power, they destroy all history. Yeah. But um, second, among other things that they seek to destroy, and, and let's go through a couple of the other items uh, in that yeah. list. So it's the, it, the dividing it, of the society itself. I, I yes, divide and conquer yes. strategy is right. is another piece of this, Scott. Yes. And you've studied it closely. Uh, obviously, those riots and what flowed from them, and uh, and since is uh, is evidence of this. You no, know, uh, this uh, cultural Marxism is it not? 
Yes, yes. So the focus on <clears throat> on the Confederate memorials was uh, the bigger picture there was to divide us internally, uh, to sort of rewrite history, rewrite the story of the Confederates, that they were slaveholders. Only, only 5% of the so-called Confederate states, only 5% of the people owned slaves. And there was a lot of moral opposition to slavery in the South. In some ways, it was maybe stronger because it had a more of a religious fervor to it uh, than, than in the North. And the, 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 the North is full of hypocrisy. I mean, <laughs> most of the slave trade right up to, the, to and through the Civil War came through northern ports like Newport, Rhode Island and Portsmouth, uh, you know, uh, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, but anyway, so d d we're a vulnerable country because of the fact that we that while we didn't invite slavery to come to America, slave traders found America. It became sort of um, incorporated into the southern plantation agricultural economy. It was a very labor intensive economy. So that happened. Uh, no, there's no getting around that, even though there was moral opposition to it. Nonetheless, it sort of just became embedded. <clears throat> so that has made us vulnerable to this critique of the Marxists that we are a, you know, that, that the Confederacy was illegitimate, its causes were illegitimate, and it's a source of dividing America. And I think they were smart enough to recognize they understand our culture better than we do, okay? The, 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 commun the, the Chinese communists do. They knew that the Southern uh, states supply more of the enlistees into our military in all the branches. There have been more people from the South uh, fighting in the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam. The, the, the South has had a very strong and proud military history. There are families in the South where all the descendants go into the military. That has stopped. Why? Because the woke revolution that has taken over from the top in our military, uh, you know, Lloyd Austin being a prime example, uh, has mandated that DEI uh, diversity, followed, equity, inclusion, which followed on the CRT agenda, but now it's more DEI. Theory. It divides yeah. the. It divides people. Right. And, by and by. By design, so, what you've suggested, Scott, which is very interesting, is that this is not just aimed at dividing the society itself, but specifically having a very insidious effect on the United States Armed Forces, which relies absolutely. on volunteers. Uh, it's fascinating, and that's a dot that I, I don't think most of us have connected, though I think it's clear that uh, this DEI and CRT agenda has been highly corrosive to our armed forces. I, I did want to just mention two other lines of attack, one against the family and the other against faith, uh, particularly the Christian faith and, you know, its, uh, its traditions, its morality. Um, it, we're going to have to take a short break here in just a moment, but I, I think what these four pillars, if you will, of the Marxist agenda and, and the extent to which it has been promulgated by Marxists, not just communists and Chinese communists, especially elsewhere, but also internal to this country is, is so, well, insidious. And I so appreciate your clarity about who these people are and what they're doing. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the effects on the other side of a very short break with Dr. Scott Powell of the Discovery Institute, author of Rediscovering America. Stay tuned. Back, Dr. Scott Powell is in the house. We're talking about, um, well, most immediately, an important piece that he wrote the other day in American Thinker, 
Uh, we're also going to talk about one that uh, appeared in Newsmax uh, that um, helps tie all this in with the present moment very powerfully. But Scott, just to finish this thought about the four lines of attack, and I know there are others as well, but uh, the family I wanted to hit especially. So the first is destroying history. The second is dividing society every which way. It's not just a class of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It is race. It is gender. It is uh, vaccinated against unvaccinated. It is transgenders against society. and the third is the family. So let's talk a little bit about that. We, we know that communists want to control society and you control society the best. The best way of bringing about long-term control is controlling the education of the children. So that's a long-standing goal. But in the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, Mao set about uh, turning children against their parents, you know, ratting on their their, their parents were resisting the communist revolution and the kids who don't know any better uh, are indoctrinated to turn on their parents, turn them in, if you will. And we saw that during COVID, we saw the same phenomena happening in America. That's why the COVID period is really worth learning from and never going back to any of that again. A a cultural Marxist uh, enterprise. And I just did want to put in a quick plug. uh, Someone who has taught both of us, I think, a lot about uh, particularly how this cultural Marxism worked out in communist China is uh, Xi Van Fleet, who's the author of a wonderful new book, Mao's America, that uh, emphasizes the point we're just about to make again uh, here in the COVID era. was operating. And and the last line of attack uh, for this purpose, uh, Scott, is the the Christian church and faith more generally, right? Yeah, it's religion in general, although I think the, the Marxists have recognized that they can join together with the Muslims and have a very formidable force to take down and destroy Western civilization. So we have two, we have, you know, that's right. Absolutely. So uh, but it goes, it isn't just attacking Christianity. It is using false fronts, if you will, to create surrogate religions. If you weaken the faith of a people, which we've seen going on in America, Christianity has lost its hold, particularly on young people, but people have a need to believe in something, believe in something higher. And of course, in the old days, it was called, you know, the pagans would worship nature. So environmentalism and climate change are really serving that surrogate religion purpose. And the, Chi- the Chinese know this and they are exploiting it. They're making money by the solar panel industry, the lithium industry, the battery industry. Meanwhile, they're building coal, coal powered plants every week. They don't, in other words, they don't believe in that. They still, they still believe in hydrocarbons. Except as another means of weakening us and dividing us and Absolutely. taking us down. Yeah. yeah. So, Scott, uh, speaking of all of that, um, their partners in much of this are the folks at the World Economic Forum, or WEF as it's called by some. Um, give us a flow of uh, how this um, seemingly distinctly globalist capitalist group on the one hand could possibly be making common cause with the Chinese Communist Party on the other? Well, uh, the Chinese, they are aware of everything going on everywhere. And they have a wonderful partner in the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum, its its strength has been in co-opting elites from the private sector and the public sector and bringing them into this cult-like environment. And it really is a cult-like environment. Klaus Schwab is not the classic cult leader, but he has a certain charm. You know, he has that that, that phony accent. And, uh, you know, he, and he seems to have a power to bring people into his worldview, which is to take down the capitalist order, to restructure it around socialism. He's you know, he's been a very big pusher of the ESG movement. And and that, of course, environment, is, social governance, and governance, yeah. and, and, and that and that, that uh, really threatens the functioning of a free market system. It sure does. It's uh, so-called uh, 
stakeholder capitalism supplanting shareholder capitalism and it's not capitalism at all it's uh, it's very much socialist so you had in this piece that you uh, published at newsmax a, a, an interesting compare and contrast with the group that i'm involved with as are you um, the committee on the present danger china which has been from its inception five years ago, warning about these various threats, particularly from the Chinese Communist Party and its friends, uh, Klaus Schwab and and here for that matter, on the one hand, and and the WEF, the World Economic Forum. Just give us a quick uh, take on on how that contrast, uh, you know, manifests itself, and 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 why it's important to the topic, the larger topic you've just been discussing with me, which is the the Marxist assault on everything we hold dear. Well, I think one of the one of, one of the most timely and threatening things about the World Economic Forum is that they've joined hands with the World Health Organization, and they are pushing a new global regulatory system wherein nations would surrender their healthcare policy uh, to the World Health Organization in the incidence of not, not just a pandemic, but it could be a climate change event, any kind of disaster. Uh, so, and, and I know, you know people with the committee are, are working hard as I am to, to defeat that. And I think, it, I think it will go down. I don't think it'll pass. Well, from your lips to God's ears, Scott, and we have to leave it at this, um, we are having at the upcoming Conservative Political Action Conference here in the Washington, D.C. area uh, in the uh, course of next week, uh, a panel discussion, our friend Bill Walton is going to be chairing it, uh, about this threat to our sovereignty. And uh, it is going to take all of us pulling together, I think, to try to make sure that it doesn't happen. But you couldn't be more right, Scott that whether it's the cultural Marxists, the Chinese communists who brought us, you know, the director general of the World Health Organization or the World Economic Forum or Bill Gates or Big Pharma or the, the European Union and most especially the Biden administration, these guys have in mind our demise and they must be stopped. We have to leave it at that. Scott, bless you. Come back to us with updates if you would, Sue. I hope the rest of you will do the same next time. Until then, go forth and multiply.